0: Welcome back to Portfolio Rescue. We had a week off last week because I was on spring break, and so we have a ton of questions built up. Today's Portfolio Rescue is sponsored by Bird Dogs. Duncan, when I was away in my office, I got a new shipment of these bad boys, right? Now, I I was in Florida for a week, and all I wore all week was Bird Dogs because they're comfortable. They have this nice little side pocket. They have the liner in here, right? You tried it for the first time. I've been wearing these for years. But especially in the summer, they're great because you can wear them for working out, you can wear them for walking, you can wear them in the water. It's great. They, they really are the sort of short for everything you can do in the summer. I, I have two main things I look for when I'm thinking of fashion. One is style. i got to be a little stylish. And the other one is comfort, right? I've got to be comfortable, and these things are very comfortable. You can wear them on a lot of different occasions. And if you go to birddogs.com, what's our, what's our uh, promo code? Promo rescue. code Rescue. You get a free tumbler, right? Coffee. Yeah. I don't drink coffee, but for people, I know there's people who do. Uh, get a free one for promo code Rescue.
1: Yeah, and you weren't lying about the side pocket. It's much more comfortable for the for your wallet, right? You know, yeah. Instead of having it's it, it's not going to
0: fall out, and if you're not sitting on it. It's yeah, that can lead to problems down the line. Getting to middle age, right? That's tough.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All right. One of the features we've been talking about a lot on Portfolio Rescue is I bonds. Got a ton of questions on these. The the rate topped out at 9.6%. The, the new rate comes every six months. The next one down, inflation came in a little bit. It was down to 6.9%. Now, today, Bloomberg tells us 3.8%. So we had this huge rush into I-bonds. Maybe it could go back up if inflation rises again, but it seems like the the really great returns on I-bonds and the great yields is that time has passed. It's over.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I I went ahead and and redeemed, you know. I, I told you it felt like a Winnie the Pooh meme thing. It seems like it should just say like withdraw, but instead of withdrawing your money, it's redeeming. So I went ahead and redeemed mine, um, not just because of like I'm a great market timer and that kind of thing, but also because we just moved into a new place and so there's a lot of like you know cash needed for deposits and that kind of thing. So it's so like yeah, I'm using gonna go ahead the Treasury and pull my Direct
0: money. website was fine. It wasn't it was, a problem. It actually,
1: yeah, it was like a couple of of clicks and yeah, in like two or three days, I saw the saw the redemptions hitting my hitting my account. So yeah.
0: I have a feeling now that rates are lower, we're not gonna hear anything else about these for a long, long time. Yeah, I feel
1: like they're probably probably gonna lose a lot of their shine now.
0: <laughs> All right, let's do a question.
1: All right. Up first today, we have hey lads. Um, this don't has gotta be from someone much. either
0: f- this is this has gotta be someone from Australia or England, right?
1: Yeah, I yeah, you it makes me feel cool You know, we don't I get can't pull I can't pull off lads. No. Hey lads, I'm a huge fan of the pod and one of the knife catchers who purchased a house in Q1. As someone with a 6 and one eighth percent mortgage from a recent home purchase, I'm weighing my allocation to stocks versus early mortgage payoff. I have a long time horizon as someone in my mid-20s and a needlessly large savings account, not to brag, uh, I've been waiting to deploy. Do I look at early mortgage payments like a 6% or so tax-free bond, or should I ignore the idea and just buy equity indices as usual? Their background is... $200,000 $200,000 income, which they say is about $47,000 in New York dollars. Uh, very high risk tolerance. They own another home. And five-figure 401k in their mid-20s. Wow. All right. Very,
0: very, yeah, this is a not to brag and also a very nicely, they, they got a lot of inside jokes here. Uh, from a hurdle rate perspective, yes, early mortgage payments these days can compete with bonds again, right? If you're talking six and one-eighth, they're, they're using fractions because that's what Michael likes to do. I'm, I'm a decimal point guy. Uh, you know, US Treasury yields as of this week are in the three and a half to five percent range, depending on the maturity. So you can probably get a little higher yields than like corporate bonds or junk bonds, maybe, but six and change is a pretty high hurdle rate now. So, but I'm not a huge that's on a rate thing, but I'm not a huge fan of comparing early mortgage rates to bonds. Here's why. Bonds are a financial asset. They have liquidity. You can if you own a bond ETF, you can trade it pretty easily. It's very liquid. That costs you pennies on the dollar. I guess you know you can use bonds to rebalance your portfolio. You can use them for spending purposes. You can't spend your house. So yes, you can borrow against it, I guess, in a pinch, but there's not nearly as much liquidity from early mortgage payments as there is from bonds or a bond fund. I guess you could look at paying down your mortgage as a form of personal balance sheet rebalancing, but... I just don't see it. I mentioned this before, I think, but we lived in our first house for 10 years and I made extra payments. Every time we refinanced, I just kept paying the same exact amount as I paid before. And by the end, I was making double payments. And after 10 years in the house, we moved on because we needed a bigger place because we had twins. And I looked at that those early payments and I thought, what good were those? I, I guess it helped me make a little bit of a bigger down payment on the new place because I had some equity, but it felt kind of useless in my 20s and early 30s to be making those extra payments. So... Obviously, we've talked about the personal preference angle here on many occasions. Some people simply hate debt with a passion, just want to get rid of it, no matter the opportunity cost. And that opportunity cost equation is different now. Like, it's a lot different at 6% mortgage rates than 3% mortgage rates. I do think you need to consider the impact of inflation over time, too, when it comes to holding an asset like this, right? If you can get comfortable holding a mortgage and you're not so averse to debt, which is something that, you know, took some time for me, it can work in your favor. So, uh, this person talked about uh, being in Brooklyn, and if... So I guess they're they're not unless they maybe they're from England. If they have an accent, they can say lads. I don't know. Otherwise, I just can't. Yeah, do it. I, I don't um, think you
1: can just be walking around Brooklyn saying lads.
0: Duncan, you you went to, you moved out of Brooklyn recently, and I I, I looked up the median home sale just Google, and they had it pegged at like, anywhere in the seven thirty to seven fifty range, right? So New York is kind of an expensive place to live, you know. Newsflash. So let's say you put ten percent down in a seven fifty place. 30-year fixed-rate mortgage at six and change, like this person has, we're talking payments of around $4,100 a month, right? And that's before taxes, which is kind of tough. I don't I don't want to rub it in here, but that same 750 k price tag at 3% rates would be a mortgage rate or a monthly payment of $2,800. So $1,300 more dollars just because rates are higher, which is tough.
1: Also, keeping in mind that average Manhattan right now, I think, is $4,500 a month.
0: Yeah, that's tough. Uh, so like, People always say location is everything in housing, but I think in, in this cycle, it's more about timing and luck than anything else it's, it's in, in rates, obviously. Um, hopefully, those people who locked in the 6% mortgage rates or 7% will be able to refinance in the coming years, and I, I think they will. But maybe next time we have a mom, we can ask Bill if the government would consider raising the mortgage interest rate deduction for people who have 6 and 7% mortgage rates because that's uh, that's ridiculous. So let's say inflation averages 3% over the life of that loan, right? which is the average inflation rate, give or take, over the last 100 years or so on an inflation-adjusted basis, that $4,100 payment will be worth the equivalent of roughly $1,650 in 30 years' time, right? Just t- using that 3% inflation to eat it up. Add in some tax benefits from the mortgage interest deduction, and that's even worse savings over time, right? I'm not saying that holding mortgage debt is always the right thing to do, but I think for someone in their 20s, unless you are you have a real aversion to debt, having that payment locked in and having the ability to have it as not only housing as an inflation hedge, but having that fixed rate mortgage and knowing what the payment's going to be, and having the ability to uh, refinance over time, I just think that in your 20s, the benefits of compounding in the stock market far outweigh the benefits of paying down your mortgage. That's where I stand. Not everyone agrees with me. That's, that's personal preference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that makes sense to me. I, I think for a lot of people, they just have an aversion to to having any debt, even when it in a case like that, where it seems to make sense. Also, keep in mind, I've I realize a lot of people don't know this. In New York City, to rent a place, you have to the standard is you have to make forty times your monthly rent in salary to be able to be qualified. Most landlords won't let you move into a place unless you make forty times monthly rent. So for that forty five hundred dollar average rent, that's what one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year that you have to make. And if you need a guarantor, it goes up to eighty times. If you have a guarantor, they have to make eighty times your monthly rent in annual salary. Isn't that insane?
0: Yeah, but the benefit is you get to live in a place that's like three hundred square feet. So
1: it's true. It's true.
0: I mean, all right. Let's do another one.
1: Okay. Uh, up next, we have a question from Sam. I have a question about what to do in a, a very specific Black Swan event, uh, or in the event of this, you know, this. Uh, situation. And they think that this is going to happen. Uh, it's just a, a question of when. Let's say one day there's breaking news that China is invading Taiwan, which probably means our stock market is going to crash. How should an investor react to news of the invasion? A, take all their money out of the stock market. B, take some of their money out of the stock market. C, wait and see what happens. Or D, don't do anything and write it out. They're saying it like it's it's right. a, a done deal, that the market would definitely crash in that case.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it certainly seems like China has been circling Taiwan for some time now. I'm, I'm no geopolitical expert. I, I read a lot of people that are. Uh, maybe it is a question of, of when, not if here. But the assumption would be, well, the algos would immediately sell off, and this would be bad for the stock market. But the stock market has a very counterintuitive relationship with war and geopolitical conflict over the years. There's this wonderful book on the stock market and how it reacted to World War II by Barton Biggs. Uh, called Wealth, War, and Wisdom. And for any market geeks out there, market historian geeks, I I highly recommend this one. I read it in the last couple of years. I I know it's a cliche at this point to be like a middle-aged guy who's into like studying World War II, but I'm totally there. And and to be fair, (laughs) I got into it in college. I was traveling Europe in college, and after being in Europe and seeing some of the things there, I read every book I could get my hands on. I, I still think Band of Brothers is my favorite book I've ever read. It, of all time. It, it, for some reason, that, that book just resonated with me. So Biggs uses the stock market to describe what was happening in the war years. Uh, I want to read this one part from the book. So he says, By 1942, a map of the world showed Germany in control of most of Europe with its fierce hegemony and stretching from the North Sea to the very gates of Moscow and Leningrad. At the peaks of ex- expansion across Asia, Japan controlled 10% of the land mass of the world and much of its most precious natural resources. Now his point was, 1942 at this point was like, this was like the worst of the worst. It seemed like, you know, all the allies were teetering on the edge, and Germany and Japan were sort of, it, it's, it's a done deal. And he wanted to describe just how bleak things were. And guess when the stock market bottomed? 1942. John, show this chart here. This is the Dow in 1942. Now, after the Great Depression, the stock market you know kind of just went along. There was a couple other crashes. It, it didn't really come close. And then in 1942, the stock market bottomed and just took off. It doubled off the lows from 1942. The war didn't end until 1945, and by then, the Dow had almost already doubled um, I've written a lot about this over the years. There's tons of other examples where the stock market didn't really react how you'd think in the face of geopolitical conflict. So in the six month following the onset of World War One in 1914, the Dow fell 30%. And then they actually had to close the market for like six months because their liquidity just dried up across the globe. And then in 1915, it reopened, and the Dow had its best year ever. The Dow was up, I think, 88% in 1915. That's, that's a year that's never been topped. So during the war, I, I think the, the throughout the entirety of World War One. The Dow was up 43% around 9% in total, or, or annually, I should say. Same thing, World War II. I think the Dow rose, uh, let's see, the Dow was up 50% throughout World War II from 1939 to 1945, 7% per year. So during the two worst wars in modern history, U.S. stock market was up a combined 115% throughout those wars. Now, that maybe you can say, well, it was different back then. There was wartime spending, and this would be different. Sure. Uh, U.S. troops were sent to Vietnam in March of 1965. The Dow was up 10% the rest of that year. By 1973, when we pulled the last troops out, the stock market was up 5% per year through Vietnam. Cuban Missile Crisis. This is one of my favorite ones. Uh, 13 Days in October. I think that was a Kevin Costner movie. 13 Days. Does that
1: sound about right? I actually don't remember who's in, in that two-week good movie, though.
0: In that two-week span, uh, the Dow lost 1.2%. For the rest of the year, once it was over, the Dow gained 10%. This one's kind of crazy. John John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, in the early 1960s, the stock market opened up 5% the day after he was assassinated. Stocks finished up the next year up 15%. So wait, what's the rationale uh, for I that? Get,
1: what possible reason Amazon would the market be <laughs> up the day after a presidential assassination?
0: <laughs> That's a, well, U.S. invaded Iraq March 2003. The stock market was up 2.3% the next day. Uh, finished up the year more than 30% from that point. That was from the depths of a pretty bad bear market, but still. Sure, if China invades Taiwan, it would seem to be bad news for the markets and the global economy, but it's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, like, should you have a strategy in place to deal with potential geopolitical crises? My contention is you should have a strategy in place to deal for all sorts of crises, right? Even things we can't think of right now, because splitting hairs here, but calling this a black swan. Black swans are things that we don't think are going to happen, we don't right. know are going to happen, or come out of left this field. This more We're like a gray swan. Yeah, I'm just simply not sold on the idea that anyone has a the ability to predict such a conflict occurring, B predict the timing of such a conflict and C predict what the market's reaction is going to be, right? So bad things can and will happen in the markets. Like you can't you can't get away from that fact that this the risk assets is going to happen. I've yet to meet a single person who can sidestep this kind of event and then figure out when to get back in because of the market's reaction or whatever what the response is going to be. So I think trying to plan ahead for something like this, I think you make your portfolio durable enough to handle something like this without trying to plan for it in advance.
1: Yeah, I I have kind of a broad question for you. Would it be a sign to you that someone probably should not be uh, in the market to begin with if they are considering whether or not they would pull all their money out of the market if some kind of macro event happened? Isn't that... Yeah, that's the point. Yeah.
0: I think your asset allocation should take into effect, like you should own enough stocks that you'd be more than willing to own them in a bull market or a bear market. Right. Right? If you can't, yeah, because otherwise it, you're going to be hopping out and hopping in, and it's it, it, that's a game that just no one can win. On a, even if you're right once, you're not going to be right on a consistent basis.
1: Right, right. Also, remember, like, you and, you and Michael have talked a lot on Animal Spirits about Ukraine and, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. People thought that it was going to lead to all these, you know, macro events in Europe that just have not happened. I'm still
0: shocked at how much lower energy prices are than they were after the spike from the war. It it, it still doesn't, you know. Everyone thought Europe was toast in terms of their economy. Yeah, it's it's the re, the reaction is always much different than you probably expect.
1: Yeah, humans are hard. All right, let's
0: do another one. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So events like this, even if you know what's going to happen.
1: Uh, so up next, we have a question from Eric. I'm a 30 year old living in Brooklyn, making $175,000 a year. I'm maxing out my 401k, Roth IRA, and have $45,000 in a brokerage account. Via my company's ESOP, my company's stock has become 20%. Duncan, what's
0: ESOP mean? You
1: employee know stock option plan?
0: Got it. Nailed it. Is that
1: it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. My company's stock has become 20% of my brokerage, even after selling a good chunk over the past several years. I also have an RSU grant uh, that will begin vesting this year. RSU, what's that one? I don't remember. I've known at one point.
0: I can't A uh, restricted remember. stock unit, I guess? Uh, yeah, okay, just, yeah, yeah okay. It's a restricted stock, basically. Uh,
1: it's considered a stable dividend growth stock, uh, which I have a question about that phrase, uh, but not one that I have extremely high conviction for long term. My plan is to sell significant portions to tax loss harvest over the next two years and reallocate those funds to broad market ETFs. When I view my portfolio collectively, I feel like I'm well-diversified with broad ETFs making up about 80% of my holdings. But when I view my brokerage in isolation, over 50% is allocated to individual stocks, should I be viewing these buckets—retirement, brokerage—as separate, given the relative time horizons, or collectively as my overall asset allocation, or as a mix of both?
0: Good question. It touches on a lot of Ben topics here: asset allocation and behavioral finance, and a lot of these things. The simple answer is yes. You you want to view your portfolio from the perspective of an overall portfolio. Like it's the the parts should be moving differently at different times. The whole point of putting an asset allocation together in the first place is that you'll have different pieces of the portfolio performing differently at different times during different market and economic environments, right? One of the biggest benefits of diversification is that, you know, it allows you to prepare for a wide range of outcomes without having to predict those outcomes in advance. So I think to do this successfully, you have to size reallocations such that certain asset classes or strategies, you'll be willing and able to stick with them even at their worst times. So I, this is like a summarizing a Cliff Asnes statement, but he says that like the greatest investment strategy in the world is pointless if you put too much of your portfolio in it and bail out the first sign of trouble. So... I do, however, believe that there are some benefits to a potential bucketing approach, right? So the behavioral bias Eric is explaining here is called mental accounting. It's just the idea that we have a tendency to mentally sort our money into separate buckets when it comes to spending or saving. So my favorite example of this, I think this was from a DVD extra, an interview for some movie they were in together, Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman talking about back in the day when they lived together, struggling actors and didn't have a lot of money. So John, cue, cue this one up for me. I love this clip here.
2: I go over to Dusty's little apartment in Pasadena one time, and, and he says, uh, hey, can you loan me some money? I said, yeah. Um, my wife was working. I wasn't working, but my wife was working. So <laughs> we both lived I said, the how fight. much do you need? He said, I don't know, five bucks or whatever. And More than that. So I, I go into his kitchen, and he has these mason jars up on a, <laughs> on a ledge. And one of them says rent, one of them says entertainment, one says books, one says uh, about five of them. Full labeled. electric. And they all had money in it, except... The one that was that said food, and that that didn't happen to have any money. So I said to you, "You don't need any money. You got money." He says, "I can't take the money out of the other jars."
0: I love it. See, it is crazy that these two legendary actors lived together, right? Especially when Hackman that was is, married. But. Yeah. I actually think there are some benefits to when you're thinking of budgeting to separating and giving each of your dollars. It's one pile of money, but giving each of your dollars a job. This one is for rent. This is for saving. This is for food, whatever. This is for utilities. My savings account is one big pool of money in the same account, but I have different goals labeled in that account, right? There's a travel one. There's a general savings that's just kind of for unexpected events. There could be other things that come up like big events for the kids coming up or holidays or whatever it is, wedding trips. So I also think that there's benefits of bucketing in things like retirement. We've talked before about something like the four-year rule where you take your relatively safe assets, whether that's cash or highly good securities, and you put them in a certain percentage and you figure out, let's say I'm going to spend 4% of my portfolio. If you have 40% of your assets in something that's relatively safe, you can think, well, that's 10 years worth of current spending needs in something that's relatively safe that I could get access to pretty quickly. And I think that can help retirees figure out the balance between risk assets and then other assets that are relatively safe in the short term. So I, I do think this specific scenario that we're talking about here for Eric with his, with his company stock options, uh, you have to look at this from a portfolio perspective. I don't think you can just look at your brokerage account. So if those shares were 50% of your entire portfolio, that's way over concentrated. I'd be really nervous. Twenty percent might be high in individual shares for certain people, but I think he, this this guy still has a right idea in terms of he's he's already trying to sell, and I don't know how great of a thing it is that he doesn't really have a lot of faith in his company's stock. He said it's a stable dividend, so the, I'm guessing that means it's it's more of a well. I was gonna ask you, what do you think stable it is? Kind of
1: what's a what's a stable dividend growth stock?
0: Okay, like a Procter and Gamble or one of these consumer staples. You so call them I, I guess it's stock not kind of? a great.
1: That's what I was throwing off by is the growth and the dividend stable and
0: stable. I, I, I guess I was thinking I'm thinking growth in terms of the dividend is growing, not the oh, not the company. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So so it's not a great thing, I guess, that you're not, you know, feeling great about the prospects of your company's stock. Maybe that could be just because it's in the midst of a drawdown. But yeah, the fact that he already has a plan to diversify it, that's great. I still think twenty percent or so might be high for some people, but I think, you know, eighty percent of your portfolio pretty diversified in in index ETFs, that sort of thing. But I do think that the overall portfolio is the only thing that matters when it comes to managing risk or setting expected returns, all that stuff. I would only use the bucketing approach when it helps you from a psychological perspective. But it seems like in this case, it, it you know it, it's probably going to hurt you. But if, if, if you still feel like you're more concentrated than you need to be, then stick with your plan of getting rid of some of individual shares and diversify more. But it sounds like he's on the right path here.
1: Yeah, yeah, they seem to, yeah. I, again, uh, probably isn't a great feeling working for a company where you're like, I feel like I have too much stock <laughs> in the company I work for. But but I know that's also a common well, financial you- planning thing, right? You don't want to have all your eggs in one basket. So.
0: And that, that is a question we get from a lot of people. Hey, I, I have 20, 30, 40% in my company's shares. How should I feel about this? How do I diversify it? How do I deal with taxes? It's, it's a question. It's like for a lot of people to think, well, that's a good problem to deal with. But it's a problem nonetheless because the co- it's the company that's you know paying your salary it's the same one that you're dealing with for retirement. You don't want to have a situation where Enron goes out of business and your retirement is, is gone just like your paycheck.
1: Right. Dave in the All chat right, just one said one it one. could be Apple. I didn't think about that. That's a <laughs> stable dividend growth ah. stock. i right? feel okay about Apple. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so up next we have a question from Guy. Uh, nicely done on your debunking of random stats that make the news and scare everyone. I would like to see you do an overview on using trust in estate planning. Can one save on taxes using the trusts? Where does one even begin when thinking about this decision?
0: Good one. Okay. I, I can't do a lot of debunking here because I, I don't have a lot of expertise in, in trusts. but uh, we do have someone with more experience using them. So let's bring in Taylor Hollis, who's an advisor hey, with Taylor. us at Riddle's Wealth. Hi. Taylor, welcome back to the show. You've worked with trusts a lot over the years. Uh, I wish I had the ability to explain these things simply, uh, but it is a question that's come up and we've had a lot of specific questions, but I like the, the idea that this one is just saying like, you know, you you know, what are they for who should think about them? What are the situations? Maybe, maybe you could help simplify this for us here.
2: Yeah. I liked his question too, about specific tax benefits. Um, because, you know, I, I, think that has, has been thrown around a lot when it comes to trust. Um, I'll just say off the bat if you're thinking saving on income taxes, trusts typically don't really help you out very much with that. Um, they're more for potentially saving on estate and gift taxes. So those are, you know, those savings come for people that have taxable estates um, and those kind of concerns. Now, typically, um, you know, the, the most common trust that we see are what's called a revocable trust, um, which is what people set up while they're alive. Um, revocable, meaning they can change it at any point. It's a base, basically a will substitute. Um, and the main benefits that we see to that are it affords you some privacy, you can avoid some probate fees um, when you pass in your estate settling. Um, so those are typically the most common. If you want to get into more of those estate and gift tax savings, you'd be looking at you know making some gifts to irrevocable trusts during your lifetime.
0: So, sorry to um, cut in here. So is, is well, the idea basically People with a decent chunk of change that know that it might be kind of tricky when they're giving up the money for their kids or their spouse or whoever or charities when they pass and they want to make sure that everything is buttoned up and ready to go and not going to there's not going to be a big mess after they pass. Is that the idea?
2: Yes, that's a good way to put it. And I think that um, I think there's room for using trust in estate planning for people that have a lot of assets and and maybe people on the lower end. Um, because again, you can use revocable trust really no matter what your asset size is for those same benefits of you know privacy, avoiding probate, just makes it easier on whoever's settling your estate. Um, there's a lot of benefits to doing that. But then I think the real um, power behind them and a lot of that tax savings that I think he's asking about come with um, when you have a taxable estate and you're using trust and planning for those things, whether it be during your lifetime, which you can do, or once you're gone.
0: Do you look at it more in terms of how complicated the the scenario is or how much money they have in terms of Typically figuring they out?
2: Typically, go, they go hand in hand. Okay, <laughs> true. More
0: money, more – yeah, okay, that makes more sense. More money, more
2: problems, that's right. I feel like
0: there was a song written about that. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so I, I, I guess as you kind of move up the, the scale and, and you have – seven figures in assets, eight figures in assets. That that's when you start thinking, mm-hmm. okay, it's, it's worth it for me to talk to an expert on this matter, basically.
2: Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, it's important to remember that, you know, while you might not technically qualify, you know, as having a taxable estate today, you take into account, you know, future growth of assets. You know, it could be that, you know, hopefully by the time that you or your spouse passes away, you might have a taxable estate. And so there's a lot of planning that you can do ahead of that um, to try to mitigate that.
0: Perfect. Okay. Duncan, let's do another one. One more.
1: Okay. Last but not least, we have a Tennessee specific question just for you, Taylor. (laughs) Uh, my wife and I want to buy a bigger house in a few years. I'm a high school teacher and football coach in Tennessee making $60,000, but I just got a new job that will pay 70,000. Congratulations. Uh, My wife is going to take off work for the next three to four years with our first baby. I'm 33 and she's 29 and we have $380,000 saved up for retirement. We have about $100,000 in equity in our current townhome and $35,000 in savings. It will be tough for us to afford the mortgage payment on a larger home without a significant down payment. Is it okay to pause contributing to our Roth IRAs for three to four years as we continue to save for a larger down payment? We usually try to max them out every year, so it feels wrong to stop. This is similar to what I was asking you recently, Ben, about uh, whether it made sense to, yeah, to quit contributing to your retirement to save Yeah,
0: up. and it sounds like they're in a very... Nice place here. Uh, Taylor is our, our resident Tennessee expert here, so that can help. But uh, it's not like they, they've, they're they really good savers. Uh, they're, they're working on increasing their income. That's great. First child on the way, that's going to be more complexity and maybe expenses. But I do think there's a psychological thing where if you've been a saver, we, we've dealt with this with retirees before, right? It, you, it's hard to go from decades of savings and then flip the switch and then turn into a spender. But I think for some people too, it's the same thing with with life goals. When life gets in the way, and it causes you to save less, people feel like they're, they're doing something wrong. When in reality, this is just, this is what happens in financial planning. So Taylor, how do you help clients see through this from a psychological perspective to help, to give them the, the, the the shove, I guess, to say that it's okay to do this if, as long as you're still saving and planning ahead. And sometimes you just have to do this kind of thing and put things on hold.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, there's, there's the, the textbook answer, and then there's the real life answer. And like you said, real life happens, first kid on the way, you need a bigger house, you know, all, all these things that I think make putting those things on pause very worthwhile. Um, it's, it's your quality of life. It's where you're going to raise your family. These are all important factors that we can't really quantify the way that we can quantify contributing to Roth every year. Um, so I think giving yourself the, the peace of mind and the okay to pause, um, is good. And also remember, you're not, you're not pausing to throw money away. You're, you're still technically investing in an asset. It's just a little different, right? You're, you're saving for a home that you're going to buy and that, that's still an asset on your balance sheet. So, um, I think that, you know, like I said, take into account those, those personal factors far outweigh whatever the textbook answer would yeah. be. No,
0: that, that's a great point. You're not, you're not putting your retirement savings on hold. So you can, go uh, to Hawaii for a five month vacation. You know, you're, okay. you're doing it for a good reason and it's still a financial asset. It's just going to, like I said, it's going to shift your personal balance sheet a little bit. And now you have a yeah. bigger investment yeah. in that house. But I, then as I think one of the best parts about having a, a fixed payment for your house is if your income grows and most people do see their income grow over time, Then you grow into that payment a little more, and then eventually, now that that payment is fixed, you have the ability to save a little more each year as you get used to living in that house. And it's going to be it's going to feel more affordable over time, hopefully. And I think that's that's the idea here. To your point, yeah, you're still making an investment; it's just in something else.
2: Right, right. And And, you know, at their ages, plenty of time to catch up. I mean, they're they're already, I think, well ahead of the curve um, and have done a great job.
0: Totally, yeah. They're you're in a good place already. It's not like they're starting from zero. They they. They're in a good place.
1: And they're ensuring right. that they don't have a Brooklyn landlord who's going to raise their rent 25% year over year, <laughs> you know?
0: Yep, probably a little cheaper in Tennessee, a little more space, yeah, more area for enough. the kids. Right. Depends uh, where they are well, in
2: Tennessee.
0: That's true. Nashville is Nashville is the new Brooklyn, I think. Uh, <laughs> we do love our audience, questions, comments, feedback. We actually, I think we heard from this person before. I think a year ago, Brett asked us, hey, I, I work in tech I, I wanna. I have a bunch of money saved. I've, I'm never going to be able to get this opportunity again. I want to take off for a year and go backpacking in Europe. And I think we said if you, you have your money saved, you're in a good profession, do it. Just got a follow-up from him. Said he wanted to follow up and say he completed one year of backpacking and traveling throughout Europe. Best decision I ever made. If anyone has the opportunity to do the same, I highly recommend it. I was able to land a job for a new tech startup and start next week very quickly, even able to keep up with the show while traveling. Thanks wow. for the update. We awesome. It's funny because anytime you make these types of financial decisions, you're always dealing with the same level of like irreducible uncertainty, right? No one ever knows how things, these things are going to work out. It's taking of faith, especially something like that. But it's always nice to hear when someone makes a decision for the right reasons and it works out for them. So, yeah, kudos. We always Great appreciate the feedback. That's awesome. Uh, thanks as usual to everyone in the chat. We always appreciate it. Uh, someone says I need to get a CFP designation. Like Taylor, but that's why we have experts on the, that I can bring on the show. I don't need one. Um, if you have a question for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. Leave a question or comment for us on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Duncan, what are we up to now?
1: Subscribers, uh, 119,000. We're approaching.
0: All right. Nice. Yeah. 120,000. All right. If you're listening to a podcast forum, leave us a review. All uh, our, our compound merch, idonteshop.com, and we will see you next time.
1: Thanks, everyone. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.